have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are live from the Killarney's Public House Studios at Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I'm Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Antonia Conti, our producer, and our esteemed guest, Anne-Marie Hill, Associate Professor of Practice and Health uh, Administration and Public Health at the Edward Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. Welcome, Anne-Marie. And we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Yavalo of Ryder University's Health Studies Institute. And we are having a conversation today about health disparities. Yes. Well, yes. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background leading up to your interest in health disparities work? Sure. Well, I actually began my career um, as a project manager for the American Cancer Society, and it was my first introduction to health care and health disparities, for that matter. Um, I then went on to uh, become involved with uh, a state agency called the New Jersey Commission on Cancer Research. It's an agency that I think does a terrific job by investing in very young, talented, um, really outstanding scientists. And we give them enough seed money so that they can establish their careers as cancer researchers. And the commission has been incredibly productive over its lifetime with supporting well over a thousand uh, young scientists here in New Jersey, many of whom have made some significant discoveries. So I'm very proud of being a part of that organization. I was their executive director for about 15 years. And at that point, um, I decided that actually Rutgers uh, came and asked if I would like to teach because I have always been involved with young people and forming young people's minds, and uh, I jumped at the opportunity to go over to Rutgers and have been there since, and I teach both undergrads in public health, health administration, public policy and planning, as well as uh, graduates in our Master's of Health Administration program. And somewhere along the way, you met Dr. Yavalo over here. Yes. That would be correct. I was a mere pup, <laughs> and maybe 35 years ago, I wrote a grant to the NIH, and then um, I wrote the same grant and submitted it to the New Jersey State Commission on Cancer Research. And uh, surprisingly, um, both organizations wanted to fund the grant. And so I said to Anne-Marie, I'm going to have to give you back your money because you're not going to pay any salary to me. And she said, don't you know how to write these grants, Yavalo? <laughs> and so uh, subsequently, when I reapplied, I was able to get New Jersey cancer money also as a seed to help launch a career in, in cancer research. Um, so we go way back. 
Excellent. And so you're here to talk about uh, health disparities, which yeah. which you've encountered somewhere somewhere along the way, not directly related to cancer research per se, but you can tell us how you came about that interest. Actually, I can. Um, and it does connect to cancer research because as I worked in with cancer researchers, we became aware that there was a significant difference in survival rates and death rates uh, between white, middle-class uh, individuals and some of our underserved populations, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, minorities, poor. And we became concerned about this. So very early on, we started to invest a little bit of money in some research on why this is the case. And sure enough, we discovered that there's a, there are real differences in cancer rates between the haves and the have-nots. And from there, I began to work in the community. And I remember one of the most heart-wrenching things that I saw was I used to go to cancer survivor days at hospitals throughout the state. And I'd go up to Morristown, where it was quite wealthy and everybody was doing well. And I'd go down to uh, Princeton. Everybody was doing well. And then I'd go to Newark, Camden, and Trenton. And what I noticed is that the people that I met the first year weren't there the second year. They had died. And they had died of their disease much earlier and sooner than they should have. And it was startling to me. And it, it really made me focus on health disparities. Now, is there anything inherent in, let me put it this way, what is it about living in those communities that created a different outcome? Great question, mm. because now we've begun to look beyond health dis disparities, and what we're seeing is that there are some social determinants of health that have a huge impact on how well we do as people as individuals and how well we survive and as populations is how and how well we have. And these social determinants, which we don't think of when we think about health and health care, actually have more of an impact than going to see your doctor um, because they take their toll over time. Uh, they're things like the environment we live in. Uh, our what, 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 do you mean, what do you mean by the environment? Okay, our neighborhoods and in communities they have differences. In uh, some communities, we have wonderful parks, we have open space, we have gardens, we have lots of fresh vegetables and nutritious foods, we have uh, safe roads, we don't have a lot of crime, we have housing that's warm and comfortable, and then there are other communities communities where you don't turn your back because you're afraid, communities where there's homelessness that's common, where housing has high lead problems, oh. where there's no safety because the windows are left open for young children to fall, where uh, there's no bike lanes, there's no trees, that we live in cement areas, there's no fresh air and the sunshine hardly sh shines. And that type of physical environment takes its toll on the individuals there. And that's one of five major social determinants. There's mm -hmm. economics. If there are no jobs, if there's no employment, 
if there's poverty, then you're going to live under a much more stressful situation. Oh. There's social connections. When we talk about neighborhoods, if there's racism, bias, if you're isolated because you're afraid to go out, if you're elderly and you have no social connections or family, then you're going to live under higher stress. You're going to have higher risks. There's the issue of health care and access to health care. If you do not have primary health care, then you're not going to get the care you need throughout your life. And there's just the general levels of stress that we live with. In those communities, they're much greater. So what do we know? It costs us more to take care of those people. They use emergency departments. They have chronic diseases. We have higher um, birth defects and higher birth um, infant mortality in those communities. So many problems. And they're not just connected to the individual's health. They're really about the population. Mm -hmm. This is heartbreaking, Jonathan. These stories, as many times as we hear them, hearing them articulated is just, um, we as a culture must find a way to better address the needs of people that are underserved. Now, Yavilo mentioned that he, he met you about 35 years ago when he did the grant. So you, you obviously started as a, a young teenager in that. That's year. right. Thank <laughs> you, Jonathan. <laughs> and, and, and so the, the question then becomes, when you were doing this for the New Jersey Commission on Cancer Research, and and since that time, this wasn't always something that was recognized, studied, or valued. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of your experience here in New Jersey with that? Sure. Well, New Jersey originally was known as Cancer Alley, which isn't actually the case. We're, we're pretty much within similar rates to other states now, other popular states. But as we moved um, along, we began to see these differences, and nobody recognized it at that time, disparities, what are you talking about? Um, then we began to see the trends, and that turned the corner. And nationally now, this is a huge problem. Yeah. And world. so it was something that happened not out of the goodness of people's hearts. Not it, at all. It, it was no. data, data-driven research. Totally data-driven. Kinds of things. Excellent. And we do want to hear more about that. Unfortunately, we have to take a quick break for some underwriting. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, and we'll be right back. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public Health Studios. Well, welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Carp in the studio today talking about health disparities with Anne Marie Hill, professor of policy at Rutgers University, who has been involved with the study of research cancer health disparities for in here in New Jersey for a lot of years. And at the end of the last segment, we were hearing a little bit about how sort of the, the explosion of research in these areas has, was, was sort of a data-driven thing. It didn't yeah. come out of, like, people's great hearts. The, the data had to be there. And she's been around to sort of see how the data has sort of driven the decision-making mm -hmm. that people are making. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the things that were popping up on the sure. research um, window? So what we observed which is one of the first things we do in good science, um, we started to ask questions, why? 
And when we did that, we started first looking at the genetics. Was there a genetic difference between people who lived in, in these poorer communities, minorities, underserved populations, mm -hmm. from their counterparts who were white and middle class or upper middle class? And some of the studies in that area were interesting. For example, we know that breast cancer is quite virulent in young African-Americans who may be diagnosed at a very early stage. And so genetically, we did identify that there were some differences that put that population at risk. But for the most part, we really were not seeing any wow, bingo answers. And we had to struggle and look at more and more uh, different areas. We started to look at some of the psychosocial mm -hmm. issues, yes. some of the stress factors. Um, those are much harder studies to define mm -hmm. carefully. And well, say, having been around for a few years now, and too, it, yes. this psychosocial model and its impact in health, um, even from my own experiences going back when I got into it in the early 1990s and stuff, was not mainstream stuff. Yeah. And it's still just really becoming more mainstream. Um, we have begun to understand the relationship of poverty to health care in a better way, in a more defined way. We've begun to understand how stress affects the immune system, an area you're mm -hmm. very familiar with. We've started to learn that poverty really becomes a problem of access to care, but it's not completely that way. And what's exciting about today is what we understand, and, and Dr. Yavalos spoke about it a little bit. We're beginning to see that what's really necessary is that we as a whole have to have health embedded into everything we do. We need a culture of health. And Jonathan, you were starting to talk about that a few minutes ago when we were discussing this. Yeah, I mean, um, biochemistry and health is an old story, but effective health communication and improved vaccination rates continues to be a huge challenge. And the society says, oh, you're a biochemistry person. You are worthy of my respect. Oh, you are a health communication person? Eh. <laughs> and so to begin to really effectively find ways to promote and legitimatize mm -hmm. some of these softer sciences that are hugely important in well, terms I mean, of I, public I, health. That's the word, so, softer science. I mean, I'm, and as I a, didn't mean to be derogatory. A, as, a, as a cell molecular biologist, I appreciate where that comes from. But for years and years, to get funding, you had to be more and more reductionistic. Right. Yes. Right. And, and what, what's happening is you got to this reductionistic model. And one of the criticisms were you were studying a disease instead of studying a person. Exactly. And in, in real life, it's people who get sick. That's right. And you have to think of all the biobehavioral things that people have to deal with. Absolutely. And, I mean, you know, we've had this conversation for I know. And, and G Jim too. Riggs and myself have been saying to Carp for years, what's the gene? What's the gene that's yeah. responsible for this? And he says, you know, that's, that's a less interesting question than these more complex, holistic yes. sorts of questions. So now the question is, what is it about the whole that um, is making people sick. But more importantly, what can we do as a whole, a whole community, a whole society, to keep people healthy and well? Right. And that is where our thinking has begun. And so we're starting to look at strategies that can be done in communities with people. We're not looking at the individual as being sick anymore. We're looking at 
What is it about Trenton that we can do to make it healthy as a whole city? What is it at Ryder University that we can do to make it healthy? I just came in and drove in today and saw all the pink uh, ribbons and tables, and I said, wow, here are our Ryder students embracing wellness and health by educating each other about breast health and breast screening. Right. So, so it's that type of behavioral change shift it's a hard thing to do, but it's where we're going. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And, and another thing that I think Anne-Marie could address is the idea of preventative medicine. Yes. Did that exist when you entered the field? No. Well, it I, it's funny. I asked two renowned molecular biologists about 20 years ago why we spent our money on molecular biology and finding cures when we should be preventing disease. And they... Both had a very interesting response, which made me pause and, and really, and I'll be interested in your ideas. They said, because it's easier to figure out what might be broken in a cell than it may be to change the behavior of every human being every day. And that is much more mm. complex than we think we about. So... Uh, they were absolutely right. They were. <laughs> they were. It's much easier to do a study in a dish where there are things in the cell you can take out and measure. And, you know, and you have a lot of fancy machines that go ping nowadays. And, and they're actually sort of cool. However, if, if it takes, you know, 20 years to get to that point to cause that change, that you can't do that study in a dish. Yeah. Um, people are also hard to work with. People don't show up for appointments. People... I hate to say it, people you're talking to lie. They have things that they don't they don't want to talk about. Let's say, you know, drug abuse or they're embarrassed by home homelessness or embarrassed by not having a job. Yes. And it makes that the kind of research in the biobehavioral model that much harder to do. Very hard. And you can ask, you could take as many cells as you want that you have and ask them a question. And then you, you run the gel and <laughs> there you have an answer. Dr. Right. Adlow's nodding, right? Right. Right. You know, there's um so Carp and myself have been talking for a while now. We've got these well-structured problems called, I can draw a beautiful square around my, my, my question, and these ill-structured problems. Ill-structured problems being all of the psychosocial stuff, all of the impacts that are happening in the, in the world that is. And so um, finding the language for people to hear, even this whole thing about, okay, you live near a toxic dump, the truth is that must increase your cancer risk. And the truth is also, with the 20-year latency and genetic heterogeneity, it's very hard to prove cause and effect. And there's so much money on the side that says, oh, my polluting chemical didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. So that the, the financial interests, even today on the Cancer Commission, do we give money to study environmental health concerns and cancer research? Or do we give money for the cell molecular people? Uh, we tend to lean towards the cell molecular people because we, as Jonathan Carp pointed out, that is a nicely structured experiment that we can mm -hmm. do. We can find an answer and we can grow our knowledge. When we dive into the muck of complexity, and that's how I think of it, um, of human, finding of clarity. Human, of humanness. Uh, yes, that mm -hmm. human relationship being human and in a social population, that becomes much more challenging and it's harder. And now throw in the genetics, 
the poverty, the stressors, and pollutants, and you've got a very complex environment. It's very hard to and, and all those things are very real. You mean you mentioned like, you know, Superfund sites here right. in New Jersey. When that happens out in the suburbs, you know, even politicians are very attentive to it. Yes. If that happens in a place that might not be as wealthy or politically active, it might not get the attention from the yes. authorities. One of the solutions, and we've been talking about research a lot, but there are mm -hmm. solutions that are different from research, and they tend to be more focused on big policy issues. And I think that while we would love to be able to say, okay, you've been exposed to this chemical, um, so you've been put at risk, we know that somebody in that group will live to 120, and somebody, uh, others will not because of their exposure. And so it's hard to say that was the cause. Mm -hmm. But if we look at policy issues, then we provide a protective umbrella around all people, and uh, whether it's cleaning up super funds or making sure that those who don't have a doctor um, have access to primary care, those are the type of policy solutions that I think offer um, real opportunity for growth. And it's one of the reasons I'm at the Blasting School mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, having watched like the discussions even at the national level, the Affordable Care Act, yes. there was a lot of, you know, it's society making decisions about what it values and what it doesn't value yes. in terms of the health of the people who live here. That's a great place to launch after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077 thebronxcom from healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Anne Marie Hill and Jonathan Yabolo, and we are talking about health disparities. And in the last segment, we started uh, briefly to talk a little bit about some of the decisions the society makes and the kinds of things it values. And we had an opportunity to watch the discussions leading up to the Affordable Care Act. And that, in a sense, is the society dis discussing what is it willing to support, what does it value in terms of the health of the citizens. Um, and I, I'll, I'll turn that over to you because you're nodding, Anne-Marie, and um, please tell us, or Gavilo, either no, one, talk, no. you're both nodding. Tell no, us some of the things no. that are going through okay. your head. Um, so the Affordable Care Act, I think, has been um, a wonderful policy experiment. And in, if we think of it in that terms, we are testing ideas that society has had about how to make improvements about our health care, access to health care, and uh, making our whole country healthier by giving uh, more and more of our people who need access to health care that access. So in a sense, we're still with experimentation Absolutely. when we look at the Affordable Care Act. And, I love and, it's, and it's not perfect, mm -mm. But, it's, no. but, but it's an experiment in progress. In progress. Yeah. It was created with the reality that there are different forces and different opinions in this country. It's, a, I think, a lovely example of democracy at work. Uh, there are those who believe that all should have health care, that health care is a right. And, of course, we have people who don't. So there's been this tension. But the Affordable Care Act 
I think, did a reasonable job at compromise and allowing a large portion of our mm -hmm. population who didn't have access to any health care now to have access. Um, and so would you agree, uh, not to interrupt you, but would you agree that the people who didn't have access to health care before are some of the people who are targeted under the umbrella of health disparities? Yes, absolutely. It was okay. it very much... Uh, aimed right at improving that disparities issue. And, and, and so the roots were from disparities, and, and we recognized that we had to do something. Dare, dare I say a social justice component? I know that's politically loaded, but no, I know. No, but it's, it, it, and, it's, and it's one of the struggles that, one of the labels that has uh, made the Affordable Care Act a little vulnerable to some of mm -hmm. the shifts in thinking that we've seen recently in um, our government and the policies that are happening. What I'm pleased about, though, is that despite being tested, the American people have said, we want this experiment to continue. Mm -hmm. We want to make the health of our citizens a priority. So I'm optimistic that the Affordable Care Act will be something that we continue to um, have and hopefully uh, in the future, we can refine and make even better because I do believe, frankly, that healthcare is a right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for people to say you are poor and therefore you deserve to die at a younger age than I, who are rich, just seems intrinsically immoral. Yeah. And so, for the government as a whole to rally a solution that everybody can agree with. I guess is again a question of rhetoric and language to manage to bring people together. And so it's a difficult task. Yes. We are so polarized. We're very polarized and it it is creating challenges. And I I do work with a lot of hospital systems and in the healthcare system so this this was a dramatic shift. This wasn't a oh, let's take some baby steps. It was it was quite a large leap for healthcare. Uh, to take on. And I think that the hospitals, some struggled. There have been changes as a result, uh, economic changes um, to hospital and healthcare systems that have been uh, certainly a challenge for the and managers. But overall, I think we've been coming together and we are starting to really understand how important good health care is for everybody. And let's not forget that we were talking about prevention. The Affordable Care Act is very much aimed at prevention. So I actually have a question. Do you think that the like growing split in the middle class also is now becoming an issue with the Affordable Care Act? Because with federal poverty level and all those types of things, I think that creates barriers to access to, especially with prevention problems. I think um, the polarization of this country, even in the middle class where you're seeing in communities. Well, let me ask, are you talking about a political polarization or an economic polarization? Economic, it, 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 okay, I well, guess? Okay. Let me, let me yeah, explain what I'm saying. You have the political polarization that's sort of happening now, roughly, you know, Democrat, right. Republican. Right. But you also have what some politicians are talking about, the disparities between, you know, the 1% and everybody else, the mm -hmm. super wealthy. And so I'm wondering what's at the root of your question or... Because there's the split within the middle class, right? So with the Affordable Care Act and the expansion, I think that some of the lower 
middle class is often kind of neglected in a way. So there's still some gaps. Okay. The good news with the Affordable Care Act is it did shorten or, or tighten those gaps mm -hmm. up. Um, they're not as large as they used to be. Um, there's been threats. There, there have been a lot of threats to the expanded Medicare coverage under the Affordable Care Act, which does hurt that situation. So you're right. Mm. There's becoming more and more concerns about the gaps growing yeah. again. Um, I do think there is uh, also, Jonathan, a significant gap in wealth, and, and it does have its impact in health, but it goes back to those social determinants again. If you do not have, and, and if you are uh, working, but working poor, then you're fitting into a lot of the problems uh, mm -hmm. that those social determinants bring to the surface. Mm -hmm. You still have those high stress. You don't know whether you're going to eat or go to a doctor because you're making minimum wage. You're working two jobs. You have two, four children, and you've got a lot of choices, hard choices mm -hmm. that maybe we shouldn't have to make if we had a better right. healthcare food system. Food versus medicine right. versus type, you know, type of food versus, mm -hmm. you know, if you're working a couple jobs, you don't have time to exercise, even, That's though, right. even though you know you should. Right. There's a lot of levels of right. complexity in healthcare policy. Yes. And, and, and yeah. just being a thousand percent clear, I, I believe that there are stories where many teachers who are K-12 teachers have to have a weekend job at Kmart in order to pay their yes. bills. Yes, we should. And so assume. the economics of a teacher, right? Who we're, where many of us would think, oh, the teacher's fine. The teacher's doing economically fine. That might not be the case. And then that whole thing gets overlaid on your health care access and all right. of these Affordable Care Act issues. Because you've got to decide between paying your mortgage or buying a very expensive drug. So do I need to buy that drug every month? Can I skip, maybe go every other day because I want to keep my house. I want to keep my car so I can drive to work. I want my children to feel like they can have access to the types of um, things that I had access right, to. Right. And you know, CARP has been studying the HPA axis for years. Mm -hmm. And so what you basically have with this chronic stress is a physiological transformation yes. in the bodies of the people. Yes. I mean, I so, imagine that is correct, right, Jonathan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, long-term long -term stress is a real thing. It's a huge thing, and it leads to higher chronic disease rates mm -hmm. in the very people we're talking about. And, and chronic disease is something that requires continuous health care. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's a real thing, too. It's not—and and, and your examples are, are well taken. It's— um, long term, it's like it's like being killed with a thousand needle points one yeah. at a time, mm. and that's why it can take years and years and years of cumul uh, cumulative <laughs> is the word I'm trying to say right. um, insults on the integrity of those cells that people right. want to study. It's right. a long time to study. Right. So we don't want to depress the audience, and and what we should start really talking about is what are some of the solutions. And I mentioned mm -hmm. po policy. Um, but there's also some things that communities and individuals can do to make differences in their health. Terrific. Mm. And I certainly want to get to that. So how do we make progress going forward? But just to, to finalize this segment, I want to ask you, in, indeed, when we look at the politicians and elections, in a sense, we're making societal decisions. Yes, we are. About what we, what we think is important. Yes. And I think people should consider health care 
beyond, in my opinion, beyond some of the political rhetoric yes. that goes on for and other there's reasons. There's so much rhetoric, rhetoric. But what I will say, and my reason I'm optimistic is because the American people have said health care is a priority for mm-hmm. us. And that tells me that this is important, that we as a society need to pay attention to it, and our politicians need to pay attention to it as well. I I certainly hope they do. And we will go into a little bit about moving forward, Anne-Marie, after some brief underwriting announcements. You are listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Clarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Jonathan Yavalo and our guest, Anne-Marie Hill, Associate Professor of Practice in Health Administration and Public Health at the Edward Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. And we've been talking about sort of the uh, social determinants of health. And in the last segment, we're talking a little bit about the politics of it and the kinds of decisions that society is making. And I, I want to ask you, Anne-Marie, um, what are some of the, the you know, viable solutions going forward that might help society you know, deal with health disparities sure. among the people here? Let's talk on a couple of layers. The first is, as individuals, we can embrace um, living healthier lifestyles. So we can eat better. We have to worry about nutrition, um, eating fresh foods, um, not relying on uh, so much of our junk food, um, really making sure we have our veggies, um, getting exercise. Very important. Even just walking stairs at work versus taking the elevator is something that really is a positive and, and individuals can do that. So um, a, there's an educational aspect. Yes, to that. absolutely. Um, making sure you have access to a mm-hmm. primary care physician. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I can't afford anything, but there are services out there, and people can connect um, you to a primary care um, home. Uh, the federally qualified health clinics are all around this area, and they mm-hmm. definitely will um, be able to take care of your health needs. Um, just relaxing, taking walks, going outside, and and breathing fresh air and sunshine is something that we can all do, reducing our stress down as much as we can. Um, There's been some exciting things happening at communities, too, because uh, we've seen this culture of health taking on. So we've got communities that now, even in areas where we call them food deserts, they don't have access to fresh foods and fresh vegetables. We now have mobile farmers markets moving around Mm -hmm. uh, from community to community. It's a very neat idea. It gives, it lets the farmers have um, access to people who need their foods. And so it's really been working beautifully. We've got people, uh, community groups who are now helping people who don't have housing find housing. Um, it's not just Habitat for Humanity, but a number of other organizations. The Hospital Association, the New Jersey Hospital Association, is working with the New Jersey uh, Housing and Mortgage Authority and developing some uh, model programs to help people get better housing, safer housing. We're putting in bike paths. We're putting in parks. We're putting in community gardens 
These are all ways communities are shifting the whole way we think about our environment and away from uh, those exposures and trying to make life a little more pleasant for everybody. And then at the state level, the state has embraced um, really addressing the social determinants of health uh, through policy issues in a number of ways. So funding is being offered to hospital systems, for example, to within a hospital having job placement training. What a great idea mm -hmm. You're, for, for those who can't um, afford health care. They have a place where they can get health care, but they can also get connected to the type of services they need. We're shifting the way we think about um, health care today, and I think it's just a baby step right now, but I hope it'll continue. Mm. Mm. At the beginning of this hour, you were talking about enjoying teaching, and now with this master's level programs in policy that you've been involved with, I imagine that you're taking students and placing them into many community-based programs that are doing basically what you're just talking about. We, we, have, um, we have a lot of students who do internships at the Blaustein School, uh, and many of them will do uh, community advocacy. Uh, some are working food banks. They're, they're working um, with a variety of clinics and mobile vans that go to the community. A number of them are educating um, at-risk populations on screenings. I'm very proud of young people today, not just my students, although I go woozy-woozy over my <laughs> students. Um, I think that if you look at the young people today, they've, they have a lot of ambition. They want good jobs, but they're willing to give back to the community in real ways, ways that make a difference to the community. So I love right, teaching. Right, there's one right over there. That's right. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> I agree. I think that I, I mean, I like to think that I'm one of those people because this is something like this conversation is something that I'm really passionate about. And I believe that helping people that have barriers to access and people that aren't fully educated on health and how to maintain health and how to promote healthier lifestyles. I think that's extremely important. And I want to spend hopefully the rest of my life doing that. So well, I can hear one thing that when I started teaching at Ryder, I used to say to students that health is not the absence of disease. Health involves a, a state of positive mental and you know, psychological well-being. Yep. And I used to get a lot of um, kickback mm. from that. Uh, I get less kickback from That's that right. now from, from the students and my colleagues. Right. Good for us. Yeah. Good for yeah. us. You were a visionary ahead of your time. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> look at it. <laughs> I don't know if I was a visionary, but it was stuff that just it made sense to me. And it, it you know, even when it wasn't the tool to, you know, core an apple, the hottest research topic. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to see that society is catching up a little bit. That's right. Mm -hmm. Ahead of the curve. <laughs> Yeah. And so in your roles, you've had a lot of political connections. And so in the back of some of these, when society makes decisions, um, a lot of stuff can happen in the, at the community level. But unfortunately, we need political buy-in yes. to change things at the, the more macro level. And can you comment a little bit on what you're seeing there? So it's an, that's a good question, because I, I have had to deal with a lot of uh, political back and forth one of the lessons I learned, um, and I, I learned it at the commission very quickly because I worked with advocates, and these were not highly rich, well-placed people. These were just people. People had been touched by a problem, and they raised their voice. Mm 
And then they found others who had a similar problem. And suddenly it was many voices. And those many voices started to yell rather loudly. And before we knew it, and I watched as they started to make change. And so I think the political system has its challenges. I think it is, it's not easy to, to believe that we can be cynical. We can believe that it's all a rigged system. What I've seen in my life, changes made my one or two people with big voices who aren't afraid of taking on the challenges, who unite with others, and suddenly they make those changes. And I saw it with breast advocates. I saw it with HIV advocates. Um, we've seen it with the prostate cancer advocates. Uh, we're starting to see it with underserved populations now. People make a difference. They can't feel as if they don't have a voice. They do. So empowerment. Absolutely. And it can be hard when everything is down on your shoulders, when you feel right. like there's nothing left. But the truth or, is. And, and you feel disenfranchised. And you feel disenfranchised. But yeah. the truth is that to make a real difference, and I've seen some incredible stars um, do this in my career it's that voice that's mm -hmm. not afraid to stand up and say, we have to change. And I need you, Mr. Politician or Ms. Politician, to do that. Mm. Well, you know, we interviewed um, Barry Ravner on this show, mm -hmm. who's the administrator for the uh, Penn Medicine System. And he basically said, I make a lot more money if I can. And if he was sitting right here, I'd say the same thing. So this is not a secret. He says, I can make a lot more money by serving the people with private insurance and with Medicare, rather than with people with Medicaid yep. or no insurance at all. As a matter of fact, he says, my hospital's gonna go out of business. And so then I say, well, how are you gonna deal with this problem? The answer is we need to have government buy-in. So your point about the politics and the politicians, we need to have people that are gonna value this federal, state, local monies being spent for the less for the less well off and for the for the health care rights of the less well off. Yes. And for good health care overall. It again, if we aren't well, then we're not happy. It's a key to being happy. And so we have to embrace it and so we have th to th all there, there's it. a word there's a there's a phrase that's often used in the athletic world is the team is only as good as its weakest link. Uh -huh. Right? And I'm wondering if that's something that people on yeah, top of the healthcare nice world way. think it about it as, as well. Very nicely uh, you know, said. I think that's very true. Um, if we can't have strength across all those links, then the chain isn't very strong. Right. So in a sense, the United States or New Jersey, we're only as good as how or we're measured by how we treat and we reflect it on our, our sickest and most disenfranchised and mm. th those people who need the help the most. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And we have to empower them so that they're able to help themselves. And um, I'm optimistic. I think there's a lot of work to be done. But if we can be advocates, if we can be the voice, if we can educate, then I think uh, we can make a difference. Yeah, that's really great. 
Unfortunately, we are running out of time. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Clarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Rider University Health Study Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about health disparities and the political process involved in dealing with that. I'd like to thank our guest, Anne Marie Hill. Thank you My so pleasure. much for coming. This has been a great conversation, and I wish we could continue it for even more time. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider University, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under academics and academic programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy. 